If you were starting the first new medical school in nearly 50 years at a top-tier research university, the first people that you'd hire would be critically important to its success. And so you'd want to make sure that one of those first people was a designer? Hello and welcome to DataPoint, the podcast where we talk about all the ways that data and analytics are driving innovation in healthcare today. Our guest is Stacy Chang. Stacy is the executive director of the Design Institute for Health at Dell Medical School, the University of Texas at Austin. Stacy and I had a chance to sit down and talk a little bit about what it's like to redesign the medical school experience as a first step towards rethinking the healthcare experience. I hope you enjoy this conversation just as much as I did. I am pleased to be here at the University of Texas with Stacy Chang. Stacy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I've uh, been hoping to do this interview for a long time. I've been following your work uh, since you moved here. And even though I uh, was convinced that it was only two years ago, you reminded me that it was three and a half, um, which is pretty amazing how fast that time has gone for the Dell Medical School. Um, I wanted to start off sharing with our listeners a little bit about your background and how you came to be in the place where you are. Sure. Yeah. No. It's a it's a bit of a tortuous story as as most uh, most uh, career trajectories go. So I'm I'm officially uh, traditionally trained as a mechanical engineer, uh, and my entree into healthcare was in designing medical devices. Right. Um, so uh, I was a design engineer in school and. Uh, I was convinced I was going to design cars actually for a living. Uh, I realized after working for two car companies, that was the fastest way to kill my passion for cars. So I departed that and discovered this company called IDEO, which at the time was a very small design firm. So I, I was like officially, I think, the first intern in the Boston office some 23 years ago, which wow. now makes me feel very old. <laughs> um, but uh, um, so I discovered this notion of design, um, which was still at that time uh, very... Uh, traditionally couched in the notion of product design, mm-hmm. and, I, and I played the engineering side of that, uh, and then entered uh, the medical field by way of designing a bunch of medical devices, both as a consultant and then uh, for a couple startups. So I've, I've had three stints at IDEO. I returned to the firm at its headquarters in Palo Alto in 2005, and not soon thereafter ended up taking over part and then eventually all of the healthcare practice. Um, and um, the work we did there when I arrived uh, was primarily in medical devices, which mm-hmm. is what happens when you cross product design and healthcare, right? Yeah. You end up with medical devices. But IDEO and design at the time were evolving quite um, dramatically. And um, in the time between 2005 and 2014, which is when I left, um, uh, the the center of gravity around the work that we did in the healthcare practice moved, uh, you know, from the 80 20 80% focus on medical devices to 80% not focus on medical devices. So um, the work we did there focused on new models of care and the environments in which you built them. They focused on you know innovation capabilities at uh, organizations. They focused on a lot on the soft side of health, fitness, and beauty mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, we did a lot of uh, work for government, and then we did still some medical device work as well. But the, the purview broadened quite considerably. I got to believe that that is uh, it represents a big change in terms of the kind of skills that have to be applied uh, understanding the health economics uh, in a different way understanding uh, care delivery in a in a much more up close and personal way or at least a more holistic way than you might have before is that is that something that um, you feel was unique to the IDEO experience in terms of being able to touch all of those different disciplines and bring them together yeah. um 
I, I do. I do think it's a it, certainly the opportunity at a firm like IDEO, which is you know relatively well known and has uh, permission to work on a lot of different aspects of the healthcare system. You know, it's it's sort of a unique opportunity to, uh, as a consultant at that time, to work across literally every aspect of healthcare, mm-hmm. and then the perspective and the ability to sort of knit together those threads was was sort of a unique opportunity. One of the unique things about doing healthcare at IDEO was that um, uh, in our practice, you had to get more deeply into the nuances of industry than you had to in other practices, you know, consumer electronics or sure. government work, you know. Uh, didn't require a depth of knowledge. You know, you had to be well-versed in 510K and HIPAA and all kinds of, you know, like reimbursement models and what an RVU meant and all that (laughs) sort of stuff. And so it was a little bit unusual for a generalist design consultancy like IDEO to have that much depth in healthcare. And that's really where um, we found a lot of our success, primarily because of the people associated with that practice. They were deeply mission-driven to actually try to affect the health and healthcare systems. Um, and so we built a really strong practice around the depth of knowledge and passion of individuals while applying you know, design, which was relatively new to the industry. Like People didn't really know how to uh, apply design in, in that kind of a space. And so we found a lot of success that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell you, though, ultimately, it was a little bit disappointing, not because the work wasn't interesting or because we weren't doing interesting stuff, uh, interesting work, but because we weren't actually affecting the core dysfunction of the health system. Mm-hmm. Right. We got to work on the edges where there were revenue opportunities that our clients could identify, and we did well by them, and they did well by us. But you know, you don't fundamentally change the healthcare system by by nipping at the edges. You really sure. have to get at the core, and that's really was the transition from from IDEO to where we are now. And it does sound like something that I've experienced, certainly working in the healthcare space for a long time, is that the different parts of the industry tend to be so hyper-specialized that they don't necessarily understand each other very well. That's right. Um, And so I think the experience that you had at IDEO being able to knit together some of those things must have eventually been really valuable when you did decide to make the jump into uh, healthcare. How did that transition happen and what was it that sort of pushed you to take a job uh, in a health system as opposed to a consultancy? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really fantastic question. I, I often say I work with pretty much every academic medical center in the U.S. while at IDEO, and I had never chosen to join one. Because <laughs> I, uh, you know, the 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 affordances of working at IDEO and seeing all those different aspects mm-hmm. and, and perhaps the initial understanding of how they interrelated didn't mean we actually had permission to work on those overlaps, sure. right? You know, we, we could observe and, and pontificate on them, but we couldn't actually act on them because in healthcare, there are a lot of rules and barriers and silos and things for good reasons, some for not, um, but t- people tend to act in silos because uh, that's the way the industry is sort of prescribed. Um, and the opportunity to work on the overlaps or at the core of the dysfunction really never really manifests itself because it takes mm-hmm. some unique circumstances. And, and it's, it's unique circumstances in Austin that arose that really created the opportunity. So, so I wasn't aware of them. I, um, I left IDEO of my own volition in 2014. And about a week and a half after I left, I got a call from an old collaborator of mine uh, named Clay Johnston, who happens mm-hmm. to be the dean of the medical school, Dell Medical School here uh, at UT. And, uh, and he said, hey, rumor has it you left IDEO. And I'm like, how do, how do you know? My parents don't even know yet. Like, what is, what's going on? You That's travel impressive. fast. Yeah, and he's like, he, he, so he begins explaining all these pretty unique circumstances, uh, which we can get into if, if, uh, if your listeners want to know about it. But, um, and he started describing all these unique circumstances that essentially gave us an opportunity to build what we hoped could be a model for what a modern healthcare system, at least in the U.S., would mm-hmm. look like. 
And as he described these to me, I was like, Clay, that sounds really fantastical. Like that sounds like a fairy tale and I don't really believe you, but I also know you as a person. So you wouldn't make this stuff up. Uh, and so he said, well, you should at least come down and visit and we can talk about like, you know, you know, how you might contribute to this. And, and I thought it would be, oh, I'll, I'll consult as an individual, right? You know, Austin's a fun town. I wouldn't mind spending some time there. Sure. And uh, I came down and visited, I think it was in December of 2014. And then two and a half months later, we, we announced the Design Institute. And it has been an amazing uh, ride since then, a very fast one, but an opportunity to really work on some of the core dysfunction of healthcare because of the circumstances here. Yeah. And, for those who don't know, I, uh, I we won't go too deep into it, but the University of Texas uh, Dell Medical School is a pretty unusual circumstance. And you were telling me earlier that you were actually employee 21 or something like that of yeah, the right. Dell Medical School. And I was just thinking, well, first of all, I know that there haven't been any new medical schools in, in major state universities in, what, 50 years before this? That's right. But uh, I'm guessing that none of them hired the head of a design institute as employee 21. Um, yeah, no, that's quite remarkable. And, and Clay Johnson um, deserves all the credit for that. Like he felt that design had a role from the beginning, if we're trying to design something that hadn't been created before. Mm. And so, yeah, I was employed 20 or 21. I can't remember. We can argue with HR about that. But, uh, <laughs> um, but we also represent, you know, I don't know of another academic medical center that has 3% of its staff as designers, right? That's remarkable. I, I've wow. talked to colleagues of mine in other places. They're like, yeah, maybe there's three of us, but not 3%, <laughs> right? And so we represent a, a, a not an as insignificant proportion of the staff here. And that tells you how much uh, we've been embedded uh, from the beginning. So tell me a little bit about that, about the, the remit as you started. Uh, again, for, for those who haven't been to Austin recently, uh, not only is there a new medical school in terms of having faculty and students, but there are lots of new facilities. There yeah. are partnerships in place. Can you tell us a little bit about the role that the Design Institute played in the shaping of you know, what would become this ecosystem? Yeah. Well, I'll rewind just for about 30 seconds and, and I give, I, I think, probably the most important context, which is, you know, about six years ago, the local taxpayers voted to raise their property taxes very significantly to generate a ton of revenue to essentially pay for health care for the poor and underserved. Um, and so if you're below a certain poverty level in Travis County, you get health care benefits, which um, has real economic benefits because mm -hmm. you're not waiting for people to get super sick and have to take advantage of really expensive care. Yeah. It also has real human benefits because people are not getting sick, right? Absolutely. Um, in the same way that they might otherwise. So so um, in, in the local payer, government payer has committed to a different um, reimbursement model, which is value-based reimbursement rather than fee-for-service. We mm -hmm. know fee-for-service really hasn't served society well. If you look at the outcomes of the U.S., we're pretty far behind the curve. Um, and so, so it's that really is the anchor of what makes, and there's a lot of other ones, but the anchor of what makes this area uh, region unique. And then the medical school's role is to help define and develop some of those models. So then if you layer that back one more, the role of the design institute is actually to be, on the one hand, very provocative, you know, uh, you know, healthcare systems and, and the, the denizens of healthcare systems tend to think in the way that they've um, worked before, right? Sure. And not because they're not creative, but the, they, they've had to accommodate a lot of the dysfunction in the system and try to make it work. Um, part of the design institute's role is to provoke them out of that traditional posture, mm. uh, but then not to leave them out in the, uh, uh, you know, uh, in the desert wandering about, mm. right? To help them with the design process, bring those courageous aspirations to fruition in a very different model. And that's what design is. It's about taking, you know, these um, these really fantastic ideas that are uh, theories and notions and then actually turning them to 
to actual manifestations in the marketplace and in practice. So, so broadly speaking, with a sort of a, a grand hand wave, that's sort of the role of the design students to actually provoke and then to help execute the, the change that we all sort of want to see. Fantastic. And that's actually, it's a great place for our break here. We're talking with Stacey Chang from the Dell Medical School, and uh, we'll be right back. So stick around. Hey, everybody, this is Reed Smith. And this is Chris Boyer. And we are co-hosts on a show called Touchpoint, which is a podcast that's dedicated to the discussions on digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, not only for just hospitals, but health systems and physician practices. In every episode, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on digital tools, solutions, strategies, and other things that are impacting the healthcare industry today. And while you listen to this show, we would certainly love you to check out ours. All you have to do is swing on over to touchpoint.health for more information, and also some of the other shows that are featured on the Touchpoint Media Network. All right, so we are back at the Data Point Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Matthews. We're here t- talking with Stacy Chang today from the Dell Medical School. Stacey, um, before we left, you were talking a little bit about the genesis of Dell Medical School and what made it so different in terms of having a foundation in serving the community and being oriented to value-based care as opposed to fee-for-service. That sounds great. It sounds like a great recipe for being able to make the kind of systemic changes that you were talking about you know, in, in three and a half years, which admittedly isn't that much time in, in healthcare terms, can you tell us about some of the things that have happened that give you some confidence that we're moving in that direction? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say um, one of the bigger projects um, in these first three and a half years is actually launching an example of what value-based care looks like in specialty clinics. So we inherited a building that was not designed for our model of care. Um, we, we redesigned it uh, entirely and stood up, you know, integrated practice units, and this starts in the healthcare nerd talk, but, you know, integrated practice All units. of my listeners are healthcare nerds, believe Perfect. me. <laughs> we're, good, we're in good company. Um, so integrated practice units, and actually the affordances you create, you know, the space, the technology, the service models, the experience blueprint, all those sorts of things in order to achieve the outcomes you want from a value-based uh, model um, require thoughtful design, right? Absolutely. You know, you know how do you uh, design spaces so that team-based models of care allow you know uh, providers to interact and interface and overlap. How do you design a different experience so patients have a greater role and feel like they can you know do shared decision making, do their own goal setting, report their own outcomes, things like that. And so, you know, there's a there's an hour we could talk about the clinics themselves sure. around everything from the elimination of waiting rooms to how we integrate you know the teams together and things like that. And so so that was one uh, really big project, but. I think one that um, that we've only just recently completed the planning on, the sort of the development of the strategy around, is actually what happens when you try to remake a mental health model. And so your listeners know full well how how far behind the curve we are in terms mm-hmm. of mental health um, uh, uh, models, and it's the same is true in, in Texas. Um, we were the beneficiaries of a pre-planning grant from the state, Texas state legislature to actually rethink what the mental health model would look like for roughly a, about a sixth of the Texas population. So wow. it's a lot of people. It's huge. Um, and it's, and interestingly, it's anchored around what we would traditionally call the state insane asylums, the state hospitals, right? Which is not a modern model for mental health. No. And, you know, people get admitted to those state hospitals after they go into crisis and there's not much else for them. Right. So it's actually a representation of what happens when we fail to intervene, early identify, diagnose, and manage, you know, um, uh, emerging mental illness. Mm-hmm. 
So we've had the benefit of actually helping to rethink what that entire model should look like. And, and I'll, I'll give you really the thesis statement. You know, most of our money, literally, and then our effort um, is spent uh, intervening once someone has had a mental health crisis. Sure. Right. They show up in an ER or even worse, they, you know, they commit a crime because of, mm-hmm. um, of their illness. Uh, and they enter the system either through the criminal justice system or through the ER or, you know, one of the mental state institutions. And then we have to bring them back, ideally, to some sort of state of uh, stasis or at least normalcy. And you're managing that. And, and crisis is, is expensive, not just from a cost standpoint, but from a human standpoint Absolutely, yeah. um, for the individuals who are suffering. Um, it's also really expensive, right? And so we would do much better to uh, help reduce the stigma, help people identify or get diagnosed or screen in venues other than hospitals or, you know, ambulances, and then begin to manage them so that they don't ever end up in crisis. Now, it'd be, I think, disingenuous to assume that everyone could be, uh, you know, we could avoid crisis for everyone. So that will still happen and the existing system still sure. needs to exist for that. But the cost to society, both from a dollars and, a, and an impact standpoint, is much better if you identify early and manage. Mm. And it's much better for the individuals that are affected. And so that is simply said sort of the shift in strategy that we're proposing. And if you work through the cost consequences in different care pathways, right, and we've worked through all of those, like it's remarkably less expensive to do that. The problem is the system is not designed for that right sure. now. So you have to re, reshape the system's resources or, or, or refit it. And so that's that's really um, where we hope to, to head. And then, you know, the next um, the next legislature session here in 2019, um, we'll find out if we can get that funded. Fantastic. I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I, I will. Uh, <laughs> that's part of my job. Sure. As you prepared and presented that plan, are there financial impacts that are foreseen or estimated or a range of financial impacts that you associate with this transition into a much more preemptive or preventative focus on mental health? There are, you know, if, if the, if the system we have now is focused on um, acute crisis and recovery, mm-hmm. right? Um, we don't actually have the resources necessary to do early identification. You know, some of it's marketing and communication, like uh, yeah. reducing stigma is about having a more public conversation about this so that yeah. people don't hide. Uh, and so those things don't exist yet. You have to develop and build and, 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 and create those resources. Um, and so there is, there is an upfront cost. Part of the question though is, can you divert some of the costs that you spent on the acute crisis intervention to this yep. and and how do you sort of manage that tender balance as one goes down and the other one goes up um, so you can't be disingenuous and say it's 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 a cost neutral thing for sure. sure it's not and that's part of the conversation you have to have with the legislature is like if you're really going to invest in the wellness of these individuals you actually literally have to invest in it right but the long term and, and there's there's actually very short-term savings you can realize and that's part of our responsibility is to be fiscally responsible mm-hmm. and, and demonstrate those but without a doubt, long term, there's huge consequences, positive ones, on the financial cost of, of, of running a different kind of system. Um, and it's, I'm sure, almost impossible to measure how far those ripples go when you think about, you know, people not losing their jobs because they didn't have an absenteeism problem, people That's not right. becoming homeless, people yeah. not, as you said, committing crimes. I mean, yeah, right. Uh, enormous impact socially and financially. Absolutely. It's and it's amazing to see an organization so new being able to take on and participate in such a big initiative uh, that's so important for the population. Uh, it is um, 
it's a privilege to actually work on something like this. It really is to have an opportunity to re-imagine uh, and rethink the core of some of our societal norms and how we encounter and engage with people who have mental illness. It's 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 some of the most important work we can do. Absolutely, and you, I, I really because I do a lot of analytics work for a living. I've actually begun to see some of those stigmas beginning to wane a bit, yeah. some more awareness, I think, between our issues around gun violence and the opioid epidemic. There's so much more uh, mental health that's been thrust into the national dialogue. Yeah. It seems like perfect timing yeah. to actually come forward with a plan that says, hey, let's actually let's, let's put, put a plan in place to, to start addressing these things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I would love in our last few minutes here to hear a little bit about some of the work that you're doing uh, outside the governmental system, maybe some of the some of the connections that you're making with industry. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I'm really curious about is how uh, the healthcare industry as a whole is becoming, becoming a little bit more open to integration with the actual care delivery systems. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell us a little bit about some of the work that you're that you're doing with uh, manufacturers, whether they're pharma or med device or digital yeah. health, whoever it might be? Yeah, and so we work with all of the uh, aforementioned, um, and uh, our engagements with them uh, are very conscious, mm. right, uh, and conscientious. Uh, both of those are apt descriptors. They represent uh, capability um, that we need to channel if we're really going to shift, you know, population's health, mm -hmm. society's health. Uh, and um, they have certain motivations, but they do align, right, uh, in remarkable ways. So I'll give you an example. You know, we're working with a pharma company that has a remarkable drug in the pipeline that will, um, I think, is not hyperbole, probably revolutionize um, the treatment of, you know, some specific chronic diseases. Hmm. Um, part of the problem, though, is there's a not enough screening of populations for that chronic disease to actually represent um, a marketplace that they could serve. And so they have an interest in actually doing better screening, as do we. Yeah. You know, people with this specific chronic disease need to be better identified so we can intervene earlier. So they've asked us to, to, to design a very low-cost medical device that allows screening to be done for pennies on the dollar, the way they are now. Wow. And to be deployed, and they have agreed that once we're finished designing the device, that it'll be open source. They'll open source it. They'll just give it away. Uh, it has a unique benefit to them, obviously, because sure. it creates the marketplace they need in order to to um, to make for a viable business model. But it has massive impact on on communities and society because we'll be able to screen better that way. And so, those are the kind of alignments that we look for. You mm -hmm. know, we're working on a couple technologies. We're working on a, a couple different things, each of which serves um, society's needs around health better and also has a benefit commercially to some of our partners. And uh, I never apologize for those, right? Because Absolutely. those are definitely win-win-wins. I find it so encouraging when I see people in healthcare, which is can be so driven by risk management mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the massive financial responsibilities that are associated with it, who are willing, as Dell Medical School was, as the people of Austin were, to step outside the comfort zone and really yeah. think beyond, you know, whether it's the pill or the device or the the exam room and think about how those things all work together. Yeah. Um, is that a part of the what you see as sort of the fundamental mission here in the Design Institute for Health? Yeah, it is. It is. 
uh, as much a mission of the design city as it is of the medical school. So the medical Dell Medical School's um, remit, you know, its aspiration is not to become the largest operator of healthcare uh, systems mm-hmm. or you know the largest purveyor of care. Um, Dell Medical School believes that it can be the one that stands up serially new proof models for how things can work. And then we'll look for partners and they could be foundations, they could be commercial, they could be other care providers, they could be other nations. It doesn't really matter Mm -hmm. for us to disseminate um, things that work. If they don't work, obviously we're not trying to disseminate (laughs) them. But, um, and so that actually, that really, you know, creates a laser focus for the work we're doing here. We're really trying to break new ground because we have permission and, and, and it's rare to have this much permission in a region where you're, providing more broadly for the population of public health. Mm-hmm. And we recognize what a privilege it is to have that sandbox in which to work. And we really believe we need to make the most of it. And so I think most of the folks, especially even in Austin, don't really realize what a unique set of circumstances are happening here. Uh, and so we feel like um, we've inherited that and we have to be a good shepherd of that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that window will eventually close if we're not careful. So um, our goal is to always be the nimble, hopefully innovators, um, trying to, you know, we'll, we'll fail on a lot of things, we'll hopefully succeed on more than those, those things than we fail at. Um, but if we can prove better um, models for health and society, along with ec- better economic models providing that care, um, then, then we'll have succeeded. And I think that's a great way to close out our conversation. Thank you so much, Stacy, for being a part of the show. Uh, it was great to have you. My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to the Data Point podcast. If you like what you've heard, please do rate, review, and share it with your social network. It means a lot. And if you have ideas for show topics or guests, please email them to me at greg at healthquant.health or send a direct message to at Chai Moose on Twitter. That's C-H-I-M-O-O-S-E on Twitter. For more information about this show or any of the terrific healthcare podcasts in the Touchpoint Media Network, check them out at touchpoint.health. See you next time. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.